for the rest of you this morning. If you brought your Bibles, and I hope that you have, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter of 2 Corinthians is where I would like for you to turn this morning. 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. We're going to begin in the ninth verse and read, uh, we're just going to read two or three verses here this morning, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with the ninth verse says, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented up. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in ye, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Let's go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and the many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the roof you put over our head. Thank you, Lord, for our church family. Thank you, Lord, for each one that you sent our way this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the many blessings you poured out on us. The very ability you've given us to be here this morning is a blessing and a gift from you. But, Lord, we thank you most of all for your son Jesus, Lord God, that you sent him in giving so that we might have life, have that life eternally and abundantly, so that we might have hope, a reason to rejoice. We thank you, Lord, for the reason and the focus of our worship this morning. Lord, we're not worthy. We didn't deserve it. But God, you've done it anyways. Lord, let us always have thankful hearts. Let us always lift our voice to you and praise and adoration and worship because you alone are worthy of it. You alone deserve it. Let us never, let us never give our worship to anything else but you. And Lord, I just pray as we go forward here this morning in this service. God, you know our hearts. There's nothing that is hidden from you. There's nothing that you don't see here this morning. And so, Lord, my prayer is, is that you would just touch each one here this morning. God, that you would meet every need, that you would lift us up. God, that you would encourage us. God, that you would just move in a mighty way here in our midst. God, that you would do what only you can do, and we'll give you the glory for it. Lord, if there's any among us that's lost, any that is undone, any that are backslidden, any that maybe are just not sure, not 100% sure of where they stand with you, God, let today be the day that that changes. Lord, let today be the day that they would repent of their sins. Lord, let today be the day that they would turn to you. 
Lord, let today be the day that they would trust in you. God, let today be the day that they would turn it all over to you, Lord, that they'd give every bit of their heart to you. Lord, let today be their day of salvation. God, my prayer is, is that you'd have your way and your will in our service, in our midst, in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, and in everything that we do. And we'll give you the glory for it. Lord, we love you and we worship you. And Lord, let me ask one last thing, and I feel a little selfish even asking, but yet I recognize how, fall, how far short I fall. I need your help this morning. I do not have the intellect. I do not have the energy. I do not have the, the, the power. I, I don't have anything I need to be able to preach this message. But I know I don't need anything but you. And so, Lord, I'm asking here this morning that you would fill me full of your sweet Holy Spirit. God, that your presence would be felt here in a mighty way. Lord, that you'd pour out your anointing here this morning. God, and that you would anoint me afresh to preach your word and your message this morning. Lord, my heart's desire is to deliver a message that's not pleasing to men, but is pleasing to you. To deliver a message that changes hearts and lives. To deliver a message uh, that touches heaven. God, my, my heart's desire here this morning is to do your will. So I, and I can't do it without your help. So that's what I'm asking for this morning. It's for the filling of your spirit, for your anointing. Lord, that you would just clear my mind of everything but your message. Place on my tongue the words you'd have me to speak. And I'll give you the glory for it. God, we love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. If you had not noticed already, I am talking this morning about sorrow and repentance. I think our text lays it out very well. Um, I will admit there's some words in there that's uh, bigger than what I am. And so uh, they take a little explaining. I had to look them up and do a little study and a little praying to get some understanding. But God makes it clear here. I think there's a comparison of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. I think the appropriate question that we could ask ourselves from this text is, is it enough to be sorry? Right? When we think of repentance and we think of our sins, we think about being sorry. But I think the right question that this text bears out to us, is it enough to be sorry? I think the answer depends on what kind of sorry are you? Right? What kind of sorry are you? Right? Being sorry simply means expressing sorrow for something. Uh, the Apostle Paul points out here that there is more than one kind of sorrow. Right? I've already started talking about that. I've let the cat out of the bag on that one. Right? There is a worldly sorrow which is being sorry because of the consequences of sin. And these scriptures tells us that that kind of sorrow leads to death. And then he points out that there is a godly sort, right? There is a godly sorrow which involves true repentance and it leads to life. 
When I think about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, now this is not the angle I'm going to take or preach this message from this morning, but a person could absolutely do a case study of, of two apostles, right? Uh, and I guess it's hard to call one an apostle because he was a traitor, right? But we could compare Judas to Peter. Both of them, both of them uh, turned on Christ on that fateful day, right? Both of them denied him. Both of them, the Bible even uses the word repent connected to them. But there was sorrow, right? There was two different kinds of sorrow there. There was a worldly sorrow, and it led to death. And then there was a godly sorrow with Peter, right? And it led to restoration. It led to life, right? It led to him being restored. So, Paul is making it clear to the church in Corinth here. There is two sorts of sorry. There's two sorts of sorrow. There is a godly sorrow, and there is a worldly sorrow. And the question I asked you this morning is, so which kind of sorry are you? Listen to me. It's not enough to be sorry when you're only sorry because you got caught or because you embarrassed yourself or because of the consequences that you will face. You know there is consequences to our sins. I remember one time as a young minister, I had just answered my call to preach, being over at Almost Home, uh, back when that church was open, it was General Baptist Church whenever it was open, uh, being at Almost Home on a Wednesday night. I know Brother Don was there, Sister Brenda may have been there, others may have been too, I don't remember for sure. But anyways, I remember talking to a young man for a long time after the service, and he was definitely sorry. He was getting ready to go to court the next day or two. He was afraid that he was going to go to prison. He was, going to, he was fairly sure that he was going to go to Fulton for a while. And he had in his head that if he could come to church and be sorry enough, that God would just wipe all that away. Friend, there's a consequence to sin. And I feared, I don't know the boy's heart, but I feared the sorrow that night was not the right kind of sorrow. I was afraid that it was the kind of sorrow that was the kind of sorry that you are when you get caught. Right? The kind of sorry when you realize just what you've done and you're kind of embarrassed by it. The kind of sorrow that comes with recognizing the consequences that you are now facing. But you see, the other sort of sorrow the scriptures talk to us about is the godly sorrow that leads to a change in your heart and in your life. Right? It is the kind that leads you away from sin and it leads you to God. Right? This is the kind of sorrow that leads you to true repentance. There is so many that make a trip down the aisle. They'll come to the altar. They might even shed some tears, but when they get up and they leave, there is no change. They go back into the world. They live the same life doing the same things that they did before. Why is that? Why was there no change that took place in their heart that 
would have caused a change in their life? I'll tell you why. Because there was no true repentance. There might have been a worldly sorrow, but there was no godly sorrow. So what does it mean to repent? I've got a definition, and I, I wrote this definition several years ago. Uh, I, a Bible doesn't last me real long. Uh, a couple years, and I'll kind of go through a Bible and end up with a new one. And I just, I got a few things written. I just go from one to the next, and I'll write it down in the next one. Actually, I'm lying when I say that. I don't write it. I have Jennifer write it. I can't even hardly read my own writing, but she writes very pretty, very neat. And so anyways, um, she re anyways, uh, so I'll have her transcribe those things for me. But anyways, it is a definition that I wrote, but it, I didn't make it up. And I kind of put it together from several different sources, but here's what it is. To repent means to have a change of heart that causes you to think differently. It causes you to change your mind about sin, about God, and about yourself. It causes you to change your mind about what is right and what is wrong. It causes you to change your mind about who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. Don't we live in a society that, if, that, that teaches us that if it's legal, it's right, and if it's illegal, it might not be right then? But that's not who gets to decide. Not a bunch of legislators in Washington, D.C. Not a judge sitting on a bench somewhere. Not even the Supreme Court of the United States, which I do have respect for the office. But they do not get to determine what is right and what is wrong. Only God himself determines that. He has written it in his book for all of us to see and to know. And so when you truly repent, you change your mind about who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. I've heard it said before that repentance is not when you cry, but it's when you change. I think that's very true. If there's no change, there's no repentance. The illustration that I have used before that I think is very good goes like this. Think about a husband and a wife. They are in a car. They are driving down the road. The wife tells her husband at this intersection, right? She's the navigator. She's reading the map. She's the one that knows where they need to go. At this intersection, she says, honey, you need to make a right. He gets to the intersection, but instead of turning right, he turns to the left. He starts traveling down this road to the left, right? He made his left turn. He is traveling down that road. After he travels down the road for a little ways, he realizes what he has done. He says to his wife, I'm sorry, honey. I went the wrong way. But if that is all that he does, it isn't enough. He is saying, sorry, isn't getting them any closer to where they need to be. They are still heading the wrong direction. Until he stops and turns and goes back to the intersection 
and takes the road that was to the right. Right? Until he does that, they're going the wrong way. They're going further and further the wrong way. To get them where they want to be, where they need to be, he has to stop the car. He has to turn it around. He has to go back onto the correct road that his wife told him to take in the first place. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning around and getting on the right road. That's what repentance is. When you repent, you turn away from sin and disobedience and rebellion and you turn to it turn around and you face God, right? You turn to God. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist uh, from the uh, previous century, he famously said, man is born with his back towards God. When he truly repents, he turns right around and faces God. That's what repentance is. Listen, let, let me let you in on something. There is no salvation without repentance. There is no salvation without repentance. The, the devils believe and tremble. But what good does that do them? There is no salvation without repentance. If we, looked at, if we look at verse 10 again uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, what I read to you just a minute ago. Let me read it to you again. It says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. What's verse 10 telling us? It tells us that godly sorrow produces the kind of repentance that leads to salvation. That's what verse 10 is telling us. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, which I want to describe this way. It is a brokenness over sin. It leads to a change of life and it brings with it deliverance. Sorrow that does not lead to repentance does not lead to deliverance, but instead it leads to destruction. You know, it is famously said over and over, I have no idea who said it first or I'd give them credit, but the path to hell, the road to hell, is paved with good intentions. I believe when we look at our text, verse 11, and this is what I wanted to get to. I believe verse 11 shows that there are seven characteristics or evidences, might be a better word to use there, that will be produced, right? That will be manifested in the life and in the attitude of a true believer who truly has repented and truly exhibited godly sorrow. All right? If you look at that verse, if we were to break it down and put it in list form, we would see there's seven things there. Let's go through them. The verse starts out and says, For behold the selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. All right? So that's, that's the context of what we're talking about. <coughs> Excuse me. The first thing 
what carefulness is wrought in you. What does he mean by what carefulness? Right? This is imply, implies taking a matter seriously. That's what he's talking about when he says what carefulness. He's talking about earnestness, right? Or an earnest care. What is the point, right? What do we see here? What, do, what are we to take from this? What are we to learn? What is the characteristic or the evidence here? Godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that wants things done the right way. Worldly sorrow wants to avoid further consequences. You want to know if it's a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow? A godly sorrow is concerned with things being done right. A worldly sorrow is not concerned with whether it's right or wrong according to God. It's concerned with whether or not it's going to face consequences. Whether or not they're going to get caught. Whether or not they're going to face judgment for it. It goes on here and it says, after I, I read what carefulness is wrought in you, then there is a comma, then we have the next one. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. This carries the idea of shame for what we have done and a desire, right? A desire to um, rectify the situation, right? To set things right, to make it right, to rectify it. Right? Godly, in other words, godly sorrow wants to make things right. Do you see it? Do you see a do you see a theme here? Right? In the last one I said godly sorrow wants things done the right way. It's what it's concerned about. Godly sorrow is concerned about is concerned about making things right, right? Rectifying it. Worldly sorrow is concerned about making excuses and justifying themselves. For their actions. You see the difference. What clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Indignation. Uh, you may have heard this word used in the, framed in the terms of like a righteous indignation. Which, that's all right. Um, I would say this is talking about being genuinely upset with ourselves for ever letting, letting it happen to begin with, to ever, for ever having allowed it to happen, for ever even having participated in it, or whatever the circumstances <coughs> excuse me, would dictate. Godly sorrow, in other words, godly sorrow is concerned with how it makes God look. Worldly sorrow is concerned with how it makes us look. How it makes me look. Do you understand? A godly sorrow, right? Look, don't think that a Christian is 10 foot tall, bulletproof, and sinless. Because they're not. When you sin, are you concerned with how it makes you look? Or are you concerned with how it made God look? You're his ambassador. You're his representative. Are you concerned with maybe somebody that, you know, looking down on you? Or are you concerned with the harm that it may, do, it may have done to the kingdom of God? That's what it's talking about here. These are the characteristics that 
Paul is um, commending them, right? He is complimenting them. He is, I don't know that compliment's the right word, commend is. He is commending them on because of the godly sorrow that he saw within them. The next one, right? The fourth one, right? The first one was what carefulness was wrought in you. The second one is what clearing of yourselves. The third one is what, <coughs> excuse me, what indignation. The fourth one says, yea, what fear. The idea is that there is some sort of a healthy fear of the Lord. That's right, the Bible tells us that. It says that that's the beginning of wisdom. There's a false doctrine that is going through our land right now that is saying to, to fear God uh, is, is a um, bad theology, right? It's bad thinking. It's the wrong way to look at it. That's not what the scripture says. Now, it is to be a healthy fear, right? It is to be an awesome and a reverent fear. The fear of judgment mixed in there, too, absolutely. Paul is saying here, yea, what fear? The idea is that there is some sort of a healthy fear of the Lord. Right? That goes along with the idea the godly sorrow is afraid of what God thinks. Worldly sorrow is afraid of what people think. Right? You ever find yourself in the situation that you don't give one thought to what God may have thought of that, but you are concerned about what other people thought, what your friends, neighbors, family, whatever, whoever is involved in the incident, what they may have thought. You see, that's not a godly sorrow. That's a worldly sorrow. We've all been guilty of that at different times. But you see, the true repentance, the godly sorrow, is we need to be more concerned with what God thinks. The fifth one that's listed here says, Yea, what vehement desire. Right? That is a strong longing to see justice done. That includes accepting consequences and punishment for sins. Godly sorrow desires to see things done God's way. Worldly sorrow desires to see things done our way. You ever walked into a situation? I think especially when it involves the church and church matters, but this ought to be our frame of mind for everything. But you ever walked into a situation and all you're thinking about is what you'd like to see done, how you'd like to see it happen, how you'd like to see it turn out, and never give any thought to what God wants, what God desires? See, that's what it's talking about here when it says, yeah, what vehement desire, right? Godly, desire, godly sorrow desires to see things done God's way. Worldly sorrow desires to see things done our way. The sixth one here says, yea, what zeal? What zeal? The idea here is having a eagerness, right? That's kind of a good description of zeal is, a, is, a, is an eagerness, right? Uh, um, I don't know. There's probably better words, but that's what comes to my mind anyways. An eagerness, right? So what he's talking about here is an eagerness to turn things around in our lives, right? Yea, what zeal, right? He's, he's, 
<coughs> excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. He is uh, he is sharing the idea of the desire, the eagerness, right, to turn things around in our lives, right? It's been explained as meaning uh, as deal for the glory of God, right? For the restoration of the sinner, for cleansing uh, from, from the defilement of sin, right? Godly sorrow makes you want to do what's best for the kingdom of God. Worldly sorrow makes you want to do what's best for you, which is the, exactly the teaching, the doctrine, the theology, whatever you want, term you want to put on it, that the world shoves down our throat and so much of the church is bought. Right? Live your best life now. Do what's best for you now. Don't think about anything else. Don't worry about anything else. Right? Don't give a second thought to another thing but yourself. That's worldliness. That's worldly sorrow. That's the opposite of what the Bible teaches us. Godly sorrow makes you want to do what's best, not for yourself and not for your kingdom, but for God's kingdom, for the kingdom of God. Worldly sorrow makes you want to do what's best for you. And the last one, if we were to list these out, which is the seventh one, it says, Yea, what revenge... Yea, what revenge. Revenge, right? What do we think of? Vindication. Um, what, it, what this is implying is a readiness to set things right. Godly sorrow wants to see wrongs made right, even if it does not personally benefit us. Even if it personally costs me something. Even if I'm going to personally feel some pain over it, godly sorrow is still willing and wanting and has the heart that longs to see things set right, to see things made right. Worldly sorrow only wants to see wrongs made right if it doesn't cost me anything. If it's not going to hurt me or hinder me in any way, then I'm all for seeing the rights made wrong. But if making the if if righting the wrongs means it's going to cost me something, means that it's going to hurt me, right? We're talking. I don't care whether we're talking here in um, terms of pride, right? Terms of of uh, you know uh, people's opinion about you, terms of money, whatever. only okay with it if it doesn't hurt me. That's worldly sorrow. Listen, these seven things that are listed in verse 7, or verse 11, I mean, seven things in verse 11, I think they're all part of what John the Baptist referred to as fruits of repentance, right? If you look at Luke chapter 3, you see uh, John the Baptist preaching. Right? Uh, you'll see him come on the scene. You'll see him preaching. You will see the baptism of Jesus. You'll see the genealogy of Jesus. You'll see all that in Luke chapter 3. If I said something different than that, I, excuse me, I meant Luke chapter 3. Uh, and then specifically in verse 7, 
John the Baptist, right? He has been preaching a message of repentance, and he has been baptizing for the remission of sins. And in verse 7, he specifically says to those who have gathered there, talking mainly to the religious folks, to the Pharisees and the scribes and such that had, that had gathered there, and he says, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then, in his rebuke, he says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. Think about what he's saying there. He's calling them. He's referring to them as supposed to be the most religious people of the day. And he calls them a generation of vipers. And he said, who's warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming, right? From the wrath of God. He says the only way that you're going to escape it is to bring forth, right? He's talking about a godly sorrow, a godly sort, right? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. So, that's my question to you this morning. Do we bring forth fruits worthy of repentance? Are we a church, a repentant church? You know, the uh, state of Missouri, the Free Will Baptist State of Missouri is, has written a um, resolution of repentance to officially adopt at the national level, right? That would cover worldwide, I guess, this year. I, you know, thought when I saw that, heard that, read it, I thought, well, that's nice, that's neat, that's good. But then when I read, like, Nehemiah's prayer of repentance, and Ezra's in the different ones, there's a few in the scriptures, right, of prayer of repentance, Daniel, right, a prayer of repentance for the entire nation. I think it doesn't go near far enough. I think it exhibits a lot of worldly sorrow. When I look at myself and I think of some of the things, you know, in myself and us as a church, you know, it seems like that our prayers of repentance and our, our you know, times of repentance with God is uh, more about make those people better. Um, you know, we try hard, God, and, and we're doing good. We're not perfect, but we're doing pretty good. Uh, thank God I'm not as bad as those people over there. I'm glad to see some revival efforts taking place around our area and through the land. Glad to see our revival effort that is we're undertaking that our revival services this summer. Thrilled about that. But unless there's a true repentance, there'll be no revival. Unless there's a true repentance that will sweep through the Christian people through this land, we will not see any positive change in our nation. Unless we begin to bring forth fruit, um, how did John say it? <coughs> fruit worthy of repentance. <coughs> Unless we begin to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance, we will see nothing but the wrath of God. You know what the Bible tells us if you were to go on in Luke chapter 3 and when. Uh, John is is talking about this and all this, you know, right, right, matter of fact, it's immediately after 
he uh, gets on to them and calls them a generation of vipers and tells them to bring forth uh, fruits worthy of repentance. The Bible tells us that the man that has two coats, right, or two shirts or whatever should share with someone who doesn't have one. It tells us that the, it, he goes on and talks about the tax collector, right? That they must stop taking more than they're supposed to, right? He goes on and talks about the, the soldiers are not to uh, use extortion or anything like that to get any kind of in, uh, you know, unjust gains, right? He's telling us, right, if you're going to bring forth fruits of, uh, of repentance, <coughs> then you need to live in honest life before all men, right? You need to be uh, complacent with what you've got and you need to be, uh, is complacent the right word? Content. That's the right word. Content with what God has given you and where God has put, has put you, right? Not to be greedy, uh, but to be content with what you have. He tells us, right, that we are to be honest and that we are to share with those that have less, those that are in need. Unless our repentance produces actions, brings forth godly fruit, demonstrates, produces godly fruit, until it becomes more than half-hearted words, right? Doesn't the Bible tell us that we cannot just be hearers of the word, but we must be doers of the word? Until that happens, we are nothing more than a generation of vipers. Just like the ones John was talking to. To really welcome Jesus into our lives, we must truly confess our sins. We must agree with God about our condition. And we must turn from our sin in order to receive his forgiveness. Isn't that, isn't that the same thing that God told um, Solomon in Second Chronicles 7.14, right? He says, my people which are uh, called by my name. Right, and he goes on and talks about them seeking, you know, praying and seeking his face. And, 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 but the point I wanted to get to is he, he said, you know, if they will turn from their sins, then he will hear from heaven and heal their land. Until we, until that's what, until we really do that, until we really turn from our sins and receive his forgiveness, that's when. The results will be fruit worthy of repentance. Fruit worthy of repentance. As Jennifer comes for a song of invitation, my question to you this morning is what kind of sorry are you? What kind of sorrow do you exhibit in your own life? Is it a godly sorrow or is it a worldly sorrow? You may have me fooled. You may have the people around you fooled. But you do not have God fooled. God knows. Might as well just get honest with God. Might as well just get real with Him. That's the only way that there's going to be a change. That's the only way that there's going to be a difference. Would you stand to your feet? I want to open the altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come this morning.
If the Spirit of God is dealing with you, would you come this morning? If you've got a need, if you've got a heavy burden, would you come this morning? Whatever it is, don't miss this opportunity. Would you come this morning? There's somebody God's burdened your heart with. You need to pray for them. By all means, come pray for them. Whatever it is, don't miss this chance.